Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman. This is episode 231. Um, my thanks as always to Tea Leaf Tea and Yeasty Boys. This is a conversation with a guy called Jeff Stahl. He is a uh, DJ and a academic. He is the uh, the head of school actually at Victoria University's uh, Media Studies. Um, he grew up in Canada and he moved out here 15 years ago. That's when I first met him, uh, which we talk about in this podcast. He was uh, he was he moved out here to do a lecturing job and then has progressed up through the school. He has an alter ego you might have heard of, uh, TV Disco. That's his DJing name. He's done radio shows on Radioactive, but he's actually done radio shows all around the world uh, on student and Bnet and, and alternative and indie radio stations for some 30, 35 years. Um, and, he, and he performs. He takes this DJ set around Wellington and around the country from time to time. Plays a lot of fantastic, obscure cover versions, uh, music from any and all genres, really. Um, so I know Jeff a little bit. Uh, this is the first time we sat down and had a really long conversation, and I enjoyed this. He talked about his, uh, well, his background growing up in Canada, and uh, we talk a, a lot about music. Um, he's always had a, a, a knowledge and fascination with Flying Nun and New Zealand music before he moved here. So it's quite interesting to get a sort of semi-outsider's perspective on that. Um, and then we talk about uh, some of his uh, areas of research within the media studies uh, job and uh, and some of his pu- publishing passions and his uh, areas of research, including a thing he's into at the moment, which is uh, uh, looking at cities around the idea of uh, not just music, but um, coffee and craft beer and wine and and which he calls the other social media these are sort of lubricants that uh, that enable conversations and enable culture um it was a really good conversation with a lot in it and then at the end we have a big old nerd out about record collecting basically which i guess is threaded through the conversation in, in many ways but uh, towards the end we just sort of start talking about um listing our collections on discogs and so forth another thing that comes up in this conversation that i thought was really rewarding really interesting was was jeff talking directly about um his experience in lockdown uh and the pandemic in terms of having to continue working from home and structure lectures for in some cases first year students who were in their first time away from home uh, suddenly having to zoom in and um you know take take notes in a virtual situation just interesting to get his perspective on how that had to happen on the fly and and the toll that that's taken on on him and the people that uh that have been involved in in those sorts of disciplines so i found that really interesting too um i really enjoyed this conversation with jeff and uh he's a smart and talented person with uh, an amazing knowledge of of music and culture so uh, i hope you enjoy this too I was going to say, I don't know you that well, but I've, but I've known you for a while, but now I know exactly how long I know you. I've known you because you put on Facebook the other day that you've been in New Zealand for 15 years. Yeah. And so I've, I've actually known you for 15 years because I would have met you in that very first, you know, when you first moved here. Yeah. I and think that, that's crazy. If, if I would have thought, I mean, time's a blur for everyone for so many reasons, but I would have thought, oh, yeah, I probably met you five or ten years ago. No, no, I remember. I think we probably met at various, maybe some gigs, but I remember mm. um, you might have been tutoring in a course for Roy yeah, Shooker. I think exactly. that's where we first met. Yeah, actually. and that's yeah. when you would have moved. You came here to do that job, like, yeah. to, basically. Yeah. And um, that, so we would have met at some... Yeah, no, exactly. I would have probably recognised you whether we'd been introduced. 
um, bars and gigs and things. Yeah. And then, yeah, I did a year of tutoring that, and I came back and did a, uh, well, I, I think before tutoring it for a year or two, and afterwards I, he would get me in to do the odd guest lecture and yeah. things like that. And yeah. I actually, I did that class, that course to finish my BA. Oh, That's yeah, how right. I met okay. him. So yeah. I kind of like, you know, I, when I was doing my BA, there was no media studies. And I really kind of wish there was, yeah. <laughs> you know. In yeah. fact, I think I think when I, as I sort of pulled out of university and then I went back and did another, um, I went back to, to do it. And I remember doing a media studies course and it was probably like 2001. So that's I when like I started. It, there you go, there you go, yeah. there you go. I was going to say it was 2001 or two and I did this course and the text was... Um, England's Dreaming was, oh, right. was, well, was one of the texts and that was the thing I remember was I went out and bought that yeah. and I was like I've still got a copy of that and a well-thumbed edition yeah, yeah. and I was kind of, I just remember going why was this not around you know when I started university like this would have been so life would have been a lot cooler I've sort of been trying to teach myself this was yeah. how I felt um, so we'll, we'll get into that but uh, and and what drew what's drawn you to that but um you, where did you make your start in the world? Uh, I was born in Toronto um, and sort of grew up just outside of Toronto, in Mississauga. So if anybody flies into Toronto, you land at the airport, which is, very, is in Mississauga. It's not very far from where I grew up. Mm. Um, and I spent about 17, 18 years there, then moved to do my undergraduate degree at McGill in Montreal. Um, I'd started off doing a BA in literature, as many of us do. Mm. Um, became kind of disillusioned with that. Um, and towards the end of my degree, um, I took a course with Will Straw, who was kind of visiting for the year. This is about 1991, 1990-91. And he put on this course on postmodernism, which, you know, kind of was at its last mm. exhausting itself at that point. <laughs> Ironically, yeah, yeah, <laughs> or not, uh, and he gave a couple lectures on popular music, and that was so. This is the end of my BA, my undergraduate degree, and I kind of thought, oh, this sounds really interesting. So we read some of the the names at the time, people like Simon Frith and mm. Peter Vicka and Sheila Whiteley. So all these people that had actually been writing about popular music for quite a while at that point in time that I really knew nothing about. So that just kind of opened my eyes up just at the time that I was finishing my undergrad. And then um, I ended up sort of working and traveling. I came to New Zealand for the first time in 1993, hitchhiked around the country, bought a lot of records, a lot of New Zealand stuff mm. when I was here. And that was really where I, you know, I kind of knew a bit about New Zealand sort of indie, mainly through the chills. Yeah, yeah. Um, I grew up with this quite phenomenal radio station that broadcast um, just north of Mississauga. It started about 1976. It was this kind of this hobby station, but it had a real connection with what was going on at kind of Queen Street, which was the kind of punk bohemian area in Toronto, which is where you know Martha and the Muffins came mm -hmm. from. And they and they started up the station, and by sort of eighty one, eighty two, they were what you would call. I mean, nowadays you call kind of modern rock, but they were really quite kind of like community or campus radio, but on a, on a commercial frequency. So mm -hmm. they had commercials, but they were really, really quite innovative in the programming. And for a kid like myself, and so many of so many others like me, 
we grew up listening to this really amazing music in 1980, 81, 82, that kind of groundswell of sort of post-punk mm. new wave stuff and you know other suburbs around the world didn't have that kind of luxury maybe k-rock it was a bit like yeah. k-rock yeah, right yeah yeah um so music was always a part of part of my life and when i f- was finishing up my ba and was kind of not happy with where english lit was taking me and pop music opened up now, i'm not a musician so I'm a fan. So I come at it as someone who's interested, interested in musicians. I'm interested. Now, were you ever going no, to be a musician I, at I, all? Really? I, I, like, I, you know, is there a guitar? Was there a guitar bought or anything like that? There was uh, at university. I had I lived with a guy who was in a band, a pretty accomplished guitarist, um, and I bought a guitar from him. But. In high school, we sort of put together... I had friends who were great musicians, um, st- some who are still making music today, still release music today, mm. and we put together a band for a couple of, you know, high school um, performances, like a Christmas event or whatever, and we just did covers. So I sang, so mm, that was mm-hmm. basically about it. I think we did Psychedelic Furs, um, we did um, Vicious by Lou Reed, we did The Beastie Boys Girls... It was yeah, a bit of a lark. It was yeah, fun. Yeah. But that's about the extent of my kind of live performance. Yeah, right. So, yeah, when I got to university, I met this guy who was was a pretty accomplished guitarist. Um, he, he lent me one, and I tried it, but it just I just didn't have the kind of the, yeah. the drive. The, yeah. the, the, so it just wasn't really for me. I didn't have... There were other things that are interesting to me, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I was getting involved in radio, community campus radio as an undergrad. So... You know, I've I've been involved in community radio f- since about 1988, 89, in some form or other. I've always always been interested in DJing. In high school, I started a radio station at my high school with a couple of friends. We used to broadcast just to the cafeteria, but you know, just gave us a, mm. a an opportunity to kind of lord our good taste yeah, over everybody, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, everybody's at lunch, and it was it was really quite a great experience. You know, it was uh, quite interesting high school because it was quite ethnically diverse right so i grew up in mississauga which was just outside of toronto which was exploding it was this kind of basically a suburban city right um and waves of um immigrants were coming in from india and pakistan and the former yugoslavia and these are all the people that i grew up with so these were kind of first generation kids of recent immigrants so I, you know, we had this kind of great mix of, of people that would just put interesting music on. So it was quite unique for a high school radio station. Um, and I kind of kept my hand in it for pretty much the rest of my life. I've always been involved in radio wherever I can be. It's, it's great. So that's been kind of an outlet for me. Um, when I... Um, I finished up and I came here. Um, this is where I kind of discovered all that kind of great um, New Zealand kind of flying nun expressway, all that sort of stuff, mm. the classic kind of... Um, I hesitate to call it a canon, but I think it's kind of... Maybe it's fossilized yeah, <laughs> into yeah. a canon in some way. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I got to see bands like The Puddle down in Christchurch and, uh, you know, 1993, 94. I think it was, you know, George was... Probably it was a bit rough. I remember that mm. gig. <laughs> George had great, one of my favorite bands. Um, and then I went across and lived in Australia for a year, and then I eventually went back home and started my MA. 
So I got back into graduate school. I'd always been kind of thinking I wanted to do a bit more of that pop music thing, so that's how I ended up um, going back to uni, starting to write. I actually wrote about um, sort of New Zealand music fans in North America. I discovered this, and so this is 95, when the internet is really kind of going public for the first time, and all these listservs, and discovering these people that were really invested in uh, New Zealand music, mainly that kind of white indie rock yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, but they were all kind of based in Boston, New York, and L.A. Um, and I just kind of just realized that, oh, this is a real thing. Like, this is... that they've, mm. they've really kind of... They've dedicated themselves. I mean, they're, they're running record labels. They're just fans. But they're really focused on this music from this one part of the world, which, you know, I thought, Australia doesn't get the same kind of attention. No, I've kind of always <laughs> wondered that. Like, yeah, exactly. I wonder what the what the exact touchstones were for people in North America. I mean, obviously the Kilgores, yeah. um, the the Martin, the Chills, yeah. um, and, you know, you can go through the list, the Verlaines, the Bats and stuff like that, but but in terms of the big ones, it's really the, the Clean and the um, Chills, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that... As I, the first, you know... Yeah, that first wave, right? Yeah. And then you would sort of get dig a little deeper into the Flying Nun roster, you get to, you know, your Abel Tasman's and maybe a bit of Snapper, and then then you start to branch off into, okay, you're blue, this, go purple, but the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's also this separate, uh, and, and some of them are into, that I know, are into all of the things we've just named, but there's this separate, like, kind of Neil Finn fetishism, which um, I think maybe started with perhaps the just the worldwide... Uh, recognition of Crowded House and went backwards, but I know there's a big Split Ends thing, and and then I know there are people that were into Split Ends was kind of college radio stuff in America in some parts, right? Yeah, I mean the it was quite funny because that's the the first seven inch single that I bought ever was and I, you know was I Got You so. Mm. Um, because it fits so perfectly into what you're talking about, 1980. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was new this, wave, noisy pop. It was this kind, and that was, and that was, that was. A, I think that might have been number one in Canada. So it was mm. on the radio mm-hmm. everywhere, and the video. And I can remember the laser etched. Uh, my uh, friend's older brother had the album with the laser etched, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the 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 vinyl. And I can remember like looking at this strange object that caught the light in the, in an interesting way. Um, so. I mean, I guess, yeah, Split Ends were probably the only other band that mm. I would have recognized. Again, growing up, I'd heard the chills, and it would have been only... Because I wasn't... I was listening to uh, this radio station, which didn't play a lot of that stuff, but they they played l- that kind of late 80s chills, so mm-hmm. Summerine Bells, um, uh, Soft Bomb. Mm. And I can remember hearing that stuff, actually. Um but for the most part, it was, yeah, New Zealand music was really kind of off the radar. It was only when I came here when I realized, oh, this is kind of a, it's quite interesting. And I kind of, uh, you know, I, I like the clean, um, going, digging backwards into the Chills catalog. I, lo- I love that kind of sound, right? When I got back to Montreal and I realized that, oh, there's this listserv that's, okay, there's the there's the kind of Flying Nun stable, but then there's all that kind of expressway, the noisy stuff, mm-hmm. the avant-garde stuff. And I, you know, I take a real kind of keen interest in that. And I met a guy 
who made his own music, lived with him, another guy, <laughs> and we kind of, uh, he was well into the Tall Dwarfs, so he did a lot of stuff with sort of reel-to-reel machines mm-hmm. and guitars, and he's, his name is Kip Jackson, and he, he's, he released a few things. We, we recorded a couple of things together, um, but we also did a radio show together for a number of years, and he really, he's really kind of one of those key people to me to give me a sense of, the possibility of radio as a kind of performance or an art form. So we would do these kind of improvs with feedback and and they had a, in the, the studio in Montreal had this incredible reel-to-reel machine and we would just build these loops and feedback and just create these soundscapes. The show is from 2 to 4 o'clock in the morning. Oh, it's right. perfect yeah, yeah, for perfect. just kind of having anything go, right? Yeah, and he yeah. knew a lot of the, he he knew a lot more of that kind of noise stuff that than I did. So I gain an appreciation of it through him and he was into all kinds of stuff um you know the stuff that's coming out in silk breeze and all that mm. sort of stuff so he knew a bit more about that noisy soundscape um experimental the diy very lo-fi thing um and we just kind of we were really nice foils for one another in this kind of radio sort of situation so um and i mean i guess i i, I just kind of kept on i I always like to joke to my students that I kind of ended up here with no real plan. Mm. Right? I've never really, I've never really had an agenda. I just, you know, when I got back to grad school, I was quite lucky um, to find this little niche, uh, this area that I was interested in, kind of writing about and researching, and I just kind of followed that through. And then out of that emerged, you know, my eventual PhD, which was looking at sort of, you know, one of the bands was. Godspeed you Black Emperor and their place in Montreal, right? So I became really invested. I suppose when I say I'm not a musician, I'm more a kind of sociologist. I'm mm. quite interested in the way in which music makers and not just musicians, but people that run record labels and, and, and do promotion and that sort of thing, that whole kind of the broader group of people that are involved in a kind of musical scene. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in the way in which they kind of imagine a place how they connect to a place how they you know um promote a place how they build a sense of place how they talk about this place right and that was talking to anglophone musicians in montreal their vision of montreal was very different than say francophone musicians right Mm. so you realize that they even though they had this kind of fantasy about montreal as this kind of anglo bohemia you know the home of Leonard Cohen, etc. Their their experience of it was quite quite narrow in terms of how they actually move through the city, right? So they talked about the French scene as a kind of parallel world, right? And every now and again. And the avant-garde experimental stuff, those people would be overlapping a lot. You'd have uh, a lot of those groups kind of Im- improvising together. So there's a bit more crossover there. But the kind of the indie bands tended not to mix as much. It's probably a little bit different now i left just before arcade fire kind of exploded um which right. was, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. that kind of transformed i can remember there was this kind of legendary spin article on the montreal scene once 
Arcade Fire had kind of blown broken up. Social scene and, yeah, uh, broken Social Scene. Yeah, Broken Social Scene from Toronto. Yeah, but uh, the, it, the, I was just going to say the Canada thing, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah, was all yeah. that. It was Feist. It was yes, all that kind of yeah. stuff that was going on, right? Yeah, and we had yeah. the West Coast, the new pornographers, yes. all that sort of stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Even, you know, had Sloan on the and East Coast. So Basically 10, 10 20-page spreads and uncut and yes, yeah, things was, like that. It yeah. was, so I, I've, I've long been interested in that, right? I mean, the, the way in which, say, Arcade Fire were seen to have kind of damaged Montreal, right? right there was a real, yeah. there was, I mean, this was how they were framed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, through no fault of their own, other than, you know, just being kind of successful and picked up by radio around the world, somehow they were the wrong kind of ambassador for Montreal, and it just became, mm. this was the moment at which, you know, Montreal had seen, by, by some, had been seen to kind of, um, reached its you know its peak kind of um, hipster hipsterdom right this mm. was it was the same arguments that were being made about you know Williamsburg and New York and you know Portland it was just the yeah. that kind of wave of the that 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 first generation of Bohemians felt kind of at some in some way kind of entitled to that space and all of a sudden the second wave of people that had read the stories about how great the music scene was or the <laughs> you know the art mm. scene was there and had kind of flocked there they were you know they were seen as basically kind of quite ruinous i i always called them kind of like modern day folk devils, right? They get sort of stigmatized because <laughs> yeah. they're the ones that are seen to be ostentatiously kind of celebrating how cool this place is and not tucked away into their little lofts or whatever and, you know, making music on their reel to reel machines. So, I mean, those sorts of things interested me as well. Um, and then I, um, uh, so I finished up my PhD in 2003. Uh, and then I um, I got a postdoc to go to Berlin, um, where I thought what I would do there was kind of a similar thing to what I'd done in Montreal. So looking at a kind of divided city and how the musicians relate to it, it didn't really pan out. So, um, I mean, I interviewed quite a few label owners and, and musicians, but it just wasn't, wasn't the same thing. I, I didn't want to do the same thing, but I thought I could take that kind of idea and just transplant it to Berlin, but it just didn't work out. So I ended up writing about other things. I, I met some people that ran a really quite phenomenal electronic arts festival called uh, Club Transmedial, um, and that became a kind of new kind of research site for me. So I became quite interested in a festival, and particularly in, in, in Berlin. I became interested in kind of other cultural events like uh, Ping Pong Country there. Mm. Um, so I was very interested in that kind of aspect, that kind of maybe subcultural, the kind of the scenic life of Berlin as a as a space where artists could kind of congregate socially, network kind of loosely. But this is where I realized that oh, this is how Berlin kind of operates. Like mm. this is they just create these kinds of moments where it allows them to you know showcase whatever they happen to be doing, perform, but also allows opportunities for artists to kind of get together and perhaps kind of formulate new projects or whatever else. So I became quite interested in that aspect of Berlin's cultural life as well. Um, spent a bit of time in, in, in Helsinki as well, just had a partner at the time there. Um, and then I got a job here. Um, so I moved here in 2005 and took up the job in media studies. 
Uh, and I've been here kind of ever since. Sort yeah, of. with a little bit of travel here and there when we could do that, I suppose. Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm quite fortunate that, again, not really having any agenda just meant that I met some interesting people mm. along the way. And, you know, I've, I've still got a good connection with quite a few of them. So mm. I miss not being able to kind of catch up with them. Um, but, you know, we're still in contact and some of them have come and visited me here. We've... Uh, 2006 or so put on a couple of ping pong country events um, the guys that started it went down and did something at Scape down in Christchurch when that was still a thing um, so I still have these connections I try to mm. go back there whenever I can uh, I love Berlin uh, one of my favorite cities um, I, I mean I'm fascinated by you know how the city has changed I'm fascinated by the, the kind of the, the cultural economies in, in cities like Berlin, but also Wellington. So I'm always interested to see how these things kind of change as economic fortunes, you know, affect places like Berlin or Wellington, that sort of thing. So, And yeah. you arrived here, it strikes me, um, at the, I guess, the end of this really big, significant, alleged Welly dub scene. Hmm which you probably didn't know about until until you became immersed in living in Wellington. Because mm. really that was starting to tail off. Mm. With, I mean, you know, Fat, Fat Freddy's still going and stuff like that, but really the peak of that happened before you got here, the, the early peak. Yeah, I, mean, I think my, my, my memories when I got here, 2005, coming from Berlin, and I had been in Wellington in about 93, 94, mm. just about five or six days. It was kind of a sleepy town in the mid-90s, mm. right? I think it was really on the cusp of when it was mm -hmm. about to, you know, kind of s s flip over, right? And I know through my connections with the radio station and other DJs here in town and elsewhere that there was a quite a vibrant kind of underground sort of dance DJ scene that was starting mm. up prior to all the kind of the dub stuff. Um, I think, you know, sometimes, I and I, I say this, um, I'm a little bit grateful that I missed that phase. Yeah, 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 <laughs> well, I, <just>, I <laughs> I mean, I, as much as I love my dub reggae stuff, and, sure. you know, I've got, I've, I've, I've got a fair amount of time for Fat Freddy's. I've got friends yeah. who are in that band. I got here, and I remember some of my most vivid moments, 2005, 2006 was, um, and... I think this was really just the the peak for me was um, going to see So So Modern mm. um, and uh, Grayson was a student of mine at one point and I got to be friendly with those folks and I, I can remember going to see them um, at San Fran. I don't think it was San Fran at that time. It would have been it Indigo. It was Indigo, yeah. And I remember catching them there and I just thought, oh, this is really, mm. this is really fantastic. Because I had just come from the city where all I wanted to hear was kind of interesting electronic music and I came to Wellington and it felt like, oh, we're still doing the tired old indie stuff and then so-so just mm. kind of Wow, and, the, and they were all, and you know, and they were kind of the tip of the iceberg. There were just yeah, other yeah. bands. Well, they around that time, it might have been, might not have been that particular um, gig you're thinking of, but right around that time, I remember they opened for the Kills. Oh, right. And it was like, fuck, they were, you know, like, they are, this is double bill material. Yeah. Like, they really, you know, owned their. Yeah. position on the stage at that point it wasn't just um oh we're lucky to be here playing with some internationals it was like 
flip of the coin who was the better act that mm. night. And I'm no massive fan of the kills, but they're a good live act. Yeah. And I loved seeing them. Yeah. So, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, for me it was, I mean, I think I caught them at the end of that because they were the headlining act, right? Right. And, yeah. you know, I think I remember, like, people were handing out cake. There was this kind of mm. connection. And I know it was, you know, so they... I was quite interested in what they were on about, and this is one of the, you know, this kind of DIY culture, which, you know, New Zealand is kind of the myth of this place, this mm. kind of DIY ethos, which I'm really quite fascinated by generally. But, you know, they had a bit of a different kind of take on it, what they call this kind of do-it-together kind of culture. And it felt like, okay, I mean, I, I didn't know much about I knew only the sounds of Fat Freddy's. I don't think I'd ever seen them. I wasn't hanging out in the Matterhorn, not my kind of place mm. um, to hang out. I mean, great food and great drinks, but not really just a little too polished for me, right? So seeing So-So was like, oh, this is the kind of, uh, this has just got the noise and the energy that I liked. And it felt like, oh, they're really bringing something together here. Like this was a real like people followed them so I just thought oh okay this is what my life in Wellington was going to be like I mean it was not like that mm. you know five years later mm. like all of that stuff had kind of fallen off we'd lost you know a number of venues in that time you know mm. um, like well Mighty arrived I think 2006 it started up um, and that kind of gave me another sort of taste of things you know a bit more rough around the edges a bit of that kind of surf rock surf punk stuff and that gave me that was it, it i mean wellington felt really vital to me then mm. so i felt like that city that i'd been in 10 years before had transformed itself into um this amazing vibrant little city that had a strong connection to berlin i knew mighty was you know modeled after bars in in berlin like uh, white trash and bar 25 places that i'd been um and it you know it just felt like Wellington was doing everything right at that yeah, moment, yeah. right? It so just, that kind of one part dive part, one part like kind of weirdo museum. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was, you know, for me, as someone who's interested in scenes and mm. interested in that, that those, those kinds of cultural spaces, it was just going there. I mean, I, 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 I've written about Mighty and, mm. you know, R.I.P. Mighty. It, it did what it did really well. I mean... Architecturally, it was a phenomenal space, just in terms of the way in which you could be at the bar, mm. have a conversation, and still see the DJ, see the band, and just and it, just in terms of the kind of um, people that it brought together from you know your your sort of new town punks and yeah. bohemians to your civil servants to your backpackers to students, it just it created a very it felt like a very cosmopolitan space in a way like. This was Wellington, you know, on display in a kind of cool way, right? It just felt like it just kind of elevated Wellington in mm. ways that I feel like we're not, we've, we've kind of lost that um, capacity. It's, that's nothing against the bars that are trying to, yeah, yeah. you know, that are doing their thing now. But, you know, that moment when I got here, Mighty was kind of emblematic of that. There were other places as well, but it just felt like, Oh, this this is this feels um, this feels like it's it's got a certain kind of vitality, dynamism, a bit kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, didn't have that kind of polish. Um, 
just people kind of threw things together. Um, wasn't really contrived. There were lots of little sort of nooks and crannies. What was that place down um, Eva Lane? Now it's it was um, it's now um, it was like a, it was a little kind of performance space down Eva Lane. Oh, yeah, do you I remember? know. I do remember it. But I'm, I'm trying to remember that, yeah. the name of it, but so, I mean, lots of places. These yeah. little nooks and crannies that it just felt like Wellington was kind of giving you a bit of a glimpse into yep. another world and and it was a bit secret a bit clandestine but if you worked a little bit harder you you found it and you just knew oh this is this this works and i think that that happened for you know for about four or five years here mm. and then it's then the recession hit you know didn't hit new zealand as hard but things changed you know the drinking laws changed you know the club culture disappeared. You lost sandwiches. Um, not one of my favorite places, but it was another. It served its purpose. It, it, did, yeah, it was yeah, a venue yeah. that you know yeah. built a kind of DJ yeah. culture, and a lot of those people are you're still yeah. around. And I saw a, a small hand. I didn't go there a lot, but I saw a small handful of absolutely fantastic things there. I think. The best thing I ever saw there was that hip hop duo, People Under the Stairs. Oh yeah, which right, was okay. phenomenal, and yeah. it and it felt like a one of those things that felt like a secret gig. Yeah. You know, only only a small amount of people turned out for it and knew about it, yeah. and you really felt like you lucked in by being there. Yeah, so yeah. I had a few of those things. That's yeah. and that so that's a moment in Wellington which I kind of cherish in a way because it feels as though I arrived just at the right time. It's like, okay, things have peaked, mm. and it's just it's. Everything is interesting here. There's lots of things happening all over the place. Um, and I just happen to be in the right place at the right time with the right people. And I'm friends with so many of those people to this day. Um, I'm grateful for, for, for those spaces, for allowing me to, mm. A, to hang out with these people and then, you know, in my own kind of way to, to write about them, right? Yeah. To, yeah. to think through all the kind of the import of everything that's going on here. Um, and then, of course, things that sort of, um, uh, as it sort of begins to taper off, um, you know, this is, it, there is a kind of melancholy, I think, um, around, and, and I'm not, I'm not nostalgic for Mighty. Um, I, you know, it's, it, it, as I said, it, it did the right thing at the right time for the mm. right people. And it just, you know, that's a bit of, that's luck in a lot of ways, right? I mean, mm. part of it's reading the moment, but, you know, they just managed to, to do it. Yeah, reading the moment still requires luck. Yeah, to, to to actually fully go off. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then and you have to and and it, then then the thing has to take on a life of its own. Mm -hmm. It can't be you can't manage it. And you know they did that for a number of years, and then just things, demographic shifts. You know, students aren't going out in the same way anymore. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, 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 it struck me when I got here that Wellington was quite a kind of a youthful city, you know? I mean, there were there were places like Zeal, so they're all ages That's bars, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. There are all these clubs that cater to a whole range of different constituencies, right? Like lots of people had their interests catered to in Wellington. There was just a kind of pluralism here that I found was, oh, this really this is really a magical place in a way, right? And then you see that over sort of, you know, five or ten years, just kind of start to really kind of, you know, dissipate so again i'm i'm i i mean i lament that moment i yeah and not so much the spaces puppies as well puppies mm. did its thing too right um yeah big time another one of those places where you got to see some you know seen the clean before yep seen the clean there yep 
with Peter Gutteridge getting up exactly. on stage. Exactly, I, I saw yeah. that game. Yeah, that I mean, how special is that? Like, <laughs> that and, it, and it felt all the more special for being in that place. Yeah. Which you only sort of, you sort of know at the time. Yeah. But you know again afterwards. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, you, I mean, you know the place because you would actually perform there yeah. in, in its earlier incarnation, yep. right? Yeah. So, um, you know. And, th- and those people are still trying to make things happen here. But mm. those opportunities, like, they really, they seem few and far between. And it feels like it's, um, you can't take as many chances mm. now as you used yeah, to be course. able to, yeah, right? Yeah. It just feels like, well, maybe it's over-regulated um, in the wrong way. Um, I think I my, my sense is it's, it's, it's tough if you want to start up a little a bar. I, I really, I'm really sad about the fact that young up-and-coming bands don't have as many places to sort of show off anymore, mm. right? There's just not... There, I mean, okay, iGum Thursdays, great. Um, kudos to San Fran for doing what they do and for doing it for so long, right? Mm. They're stalwarts. Um, but you need more spaces, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, if one feels like that kind of the live music scene... Um, has has really taken a hit, and you know, band uh, bars tend to default to to DJs. They're a little bit easier to kind of yeah manage, yeah, less yeah. overhead, less risk. So, um, again, nothing against those bars that do that. I DJ at some of those bars myself, but I really feel that you know that moment when I came here and it was it felt like a youthful, energetic city where people were willing and able to try a lot of things those have just kind of narrowed to fewer and fewer opportunities totally but i but i guess one of the things that has come out and will come out of the technology enabling people to do things like live streaming which is you know which i'm on the fence about how i feel about that but it does allow people to um to do what they want and find an audience so the people making intentionally um, weird and challenging sounds mm. if they want to share that they can share it in that way you know they can film themselves in their lounge doing their performance art which is different obviously because yep. a lot of performance art requires some sort of audience to react to it of course to you want to confront that audience but it's still is possible that a, a scene could emerge from that, or at least people can be seen and heard. Sure, I think there's. I mean, there's there's nothing against that, and I think yeah. I, I think it's a kind of a supplement or a compliment. I mean, for me, the um, going out to a venue, often not knowing, you know, maybe knowing a little bit about a band that's performing, but mm. maybe not knowing the opening act and being blown away. That kind of element of surprise, you know, you. That kind of that kind of pleasure is it, it just kind of disappeared in a way. Oh, definitely. So yeah. I, I again I feel it, it feels unfortunate because I think there should be more places where young people can play. But I mean, young people aren't going out in the same way they they used to anymore. They can't afford to you know you know as much as I like my craft beer. Arguably, it's kind of driven students mm-hmm. and young people into their flats and into their dorms. So that's where they tend to party these days. So, you know, we saw that, you know, when Puppy shut down and iGum kind of did their kind of house parties around around Arrow Valley and elsewhere. I thought, mm. great initiative, but that's those are private parties. Those are... Mm. Those are 
those just playing to your friends, not the kind yes, of not very the, exclusive club. Very exclusive, right. yeah. and people are people like you. You're not yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah, the yeah. challenge is different, right? Well, that's what I was going to say about the whole the whole live streaming thing is it's going to raise a generation of performers, not just musicians, that that aren't ready for that in the moment criticism that that you know the criticism's gone of the jaded old newspaper hack like myself that's gone but the the the, the actual more brutal criticism was the person in the front row that didn't want to be there or the person that walked out and possibly yelled something first or knocked over their can on purpose and they're not going to get that and when they do get that that's going to be even more frightening <laughs> yeah. right yeah i think i mean it's become maybe self-selecting in a way yeah. so um I mean, I get, I, I get it, but it felt like oh, those kind of secret parties were exactly that, and it, and the kind of what that means is the the kind of the the public part of being out or, or being out in public, the the parts of sort of urban life that I love, um, those things are being pulled away from the city center, and they're starting to occupy the kind of the suburbs, and I am always feel to myself. You're just giving yourself over to the gentrifiers, to all those people that want to transform those spaces into. Well, I think about all the places that have become craft beer bars. It's like these these would be great venues. They're perfect size, right? Mm-mm. And it's just the. I mean, the nature of you know real estate and everything else, um, and rents have just made it impossible for people to kind of get a foothold. People that want to, uh, you know allow a kind of a creative scene whether it's music or art of any sort to kind of flourish they're just those opportunities are, are slowly disappearing i mean it'll be quite curious to see what happens coming out of covid right i mean i don't wish anybody ill will you know if, if a business has to shut but people have to rethink about you know yeah. rethink what they're going to do to Thanks revive me. the city center right what are we going to do what can we do Maybe we change the the laws around rentals. Maybe we get rid of negative gearing. Maybe we free up all those spaces which have been empty for years that nobody's using. More pop-ups. I don't know. It just feels like maybe there's an opportunity here that um, something could kind of be kind of rejuvenated. So, Mm, mm, mm. So what's been your, I mean, how has your role changed at the university if you've been here for 15 years? So you come over here to do... A teaching position essentially for the media studies school. Hmm. The, 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 where I would have met you, the, when I was tutoring a paper called A Social History of Popular Music, I think it was called, and I had, as I say, I'd done that course and then I'd been asked to stay on a, as a tutor. And I couldn't believe such a course existed because I was like, well, for a start, this is dead easy because, because I <laughs> spent my life reading music magazines, buying music, and reading biographies and studying this stuff. So I kind of, it was like, oh, the, They've finally caught up with me and made a course that I've actually been doing myself, and I know a lot. I, will, I wouldn't have felt alone in that. There are mm. other people that, mm. but then, you know, I, I was a, a mature student doing that or whatever. So you know, that's why I felt like that. People have got to grow up with it and move through it. Mm. And what? So you started off uh, as a lecturer, yeah, in that, yeah, um, well, or in that school, yeah. Well, I mean, to be honest, I met. I met Roy Shooker my first time in New Zealand. I actually right. had read something that he'd written, and um, I forget what it was. And so I, because I was thinking when I finished my undergrad, maybe I'd come and do a master's degree in New Zealand. I'll check it out. So I went to see Roy, who was at Massey 
in Palmerston North at that point in time. So we just kind of hung out. Um, I eventually went back, and when I started my MA in Montreal, he actually came over and visited because um, he was doing some work around sort of content quotas, mm-hmm. you know, looking at the Canadian model of content quotas on radio. Um, and, you know, New Zealand doesn't have an official one. It's got a kind of voluntary mm-hmm. quota. So he was, you know, thinking about policy and whatnot. So, so I'd met him. Um, so when I did the interview, he was one of the people on the interview panel and we were sort of talking about popular music and whatnot. So I knew that Roy was sort of the popular music person here. Mm. You don't necessarily, media studies didn't really necessarily need two. So I sort of took my, what I was interested in, which was those kinds of cultural spaces associated with creativity, like art worlds, scenes, bohemies, and subcultures. So I built a course which was much broader not mm. and less focused on music. So even though I sort of taught into the pop music course, I was kind of more interested in the social worlds associated with, um, with you know, cultural cultural practice so mm, mm. um and that and that's actually where i first met um grayson from memory i think he took that course um so i and from there um i started to realize that actually i'm quite much more interested in sort of urban culture and music is my way into understanding the city i've always seen you know scenes are ways in which you get to know a place right you get to know people you get to know at some level how it kind of works it you know, gives you a sense of, you know, um, it's kind of what I would call a kind of pedagogical prison. You kind of learn how to navigate the city through its musical culture, mm. right? And I, I'm i interested in that as a sort of sociologist, but I'm also aware that's often how musicians find their way through the city is through its musical culture, right? You know, these kinds of pathways, yeah, these totally. networks, right? So, Well, you think even about people that come to Wellington, international musicians always find their way to Slowboat Records yeah. and they always find their way to Alistair's music yeah. and go and play instruments there and yeah. you sit, you know, you, Alistair puts his videos up and it's s- some amazing musician that just yeah. happens to be playing in town that night or, or had just played and you maybe didn't even know that because in some cases they're like orchestra members yeah. but they've had people from Bob Dylan's band in there, you know, yeah, things right. like that. I mean, this How is... do they find it? They know, you know. <laughs> well, this is it's one of those things they get, they yeah. you know, hear from somebody else who's That's been right. through here, by the way, when you're you in Wellington, check out Slowboat yeah. or Alistair's or wherever. I mean, those are the kinds of things that I find kind of fascinating, the mm. way in which the city kind of it organizes itself around around music in some ways and then that's obviously the way in which people so people have a kind of a musical experience of Wellington right they they get to know the promoters the promoters whoever picked them up at the airport all that so they get kind of ingratiated into it so it's a quite narrow view but it's also it gives them a kind of an interesting kind of cross-section um, and because there's so many musicians here um, it's different than other kinds of um, performing arts for that matter right I mean you're going to you're going to wander around, you're going to go to, you you know, you're going to see different gigs and whatnot if you're in town, if you can, right? So I've always thought that a music scene is this way into understanding how a city works, right? And it's kind of, you get to know a different kind of infrastructure in a way. Um, that's one of the things that I'm interested in. It's like how people navigate, learn to navigate a city through mm. their growing musicianship or their ingratiation into a kind of musical culture how they learn how to conduct themselves in a city right how they learn to and this is why i've you know social modern was kind of fascinating in their particular kind of idea of rather than diy do it together well you know 
we've got limited resources. We're gonna have to find ways to kind of share mm. them, right? Whether it's uh, whether it's amps or whatever else. I mean, this has been going on for for decades, but it just becomes a kind of collective experience uh, of a place, which you know fascinated me. So I. Music is my way into kind of understanding how urban culture works in a way. I'm I'm interested in craft beer. I'm interested in in coffee. I'm interested. I mean, I'm interested in all aspects of of kind of urban culture. Music is just the one that I've been focusing on for a long period of time. Mm, so, mm, yeah. mm. and um, and let's talk about TV disco, <laughs> particularly like. Because before, when you said something about, I was going to say, you said something before about um, you almost apologised for not liking something with musical or, or or a particular album. And I was like, of all the people I know and what I know of their music tastes, you don't have to sort of justify or apologise for anything because you you might be one of the broadest listeners I think I've come across. Uh, well, I don't know if I'm 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 not as broad as a lot of people think. Um, I certainly um, I'm certainly have some things that I know nothing about. Right. Um, and perhaps I'm you know I'm always I, I'm I'm curious. I guess. Um, I mean, this is I think again. Well, it, perhaps you've gone broad in one specific yes, direction. That's that's where, maybe more it is. Yeah. But I don't see you as being like. Um, I was going to say I don't necessarily see you as being outwardly a snob, but then again, academics quite like being um, observed as that. I think, but you, you, um, you'll find the good or or the fantastically bad and things wherever they come from. Is probably what I was thinking. Like, yeah, I like to say that I have really good bad taste. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in some things, so yeah. I, um, and you know, if 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 I think about it, uh, you know, as as someone. I mean, I, I, I guess I call myself a DJ. I'm not, I, you know, I don't DJ in ways that most people would expect a DJ to DJ. Mm. Um, I don't beat match, can't beat match to save my life. Doesn't yeah. interest me. Yeah. Um, and I and I kind of genre switch, you know, on a dime, right? For me, um, I think what, what I've kind of grown into is having a bit of a sense of humor when I DJ. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, I mean... All kudos to all those serious DJs out there, but I there's nothing better than sort of throwing on that sort of you know Croatian version of um, you know Yazoo's um, situation, for example. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just people just kind of when they're on a dance floor, just kind of there, and they look and they smile. And I can remember there's one there's one moment that where I really realized what I was doing, and I think it was I was I was playing at Mighty one night. And um, they were always very loose nights at Mighty. Um, but I remember when I finished my set, I played this um, finished version of um, Fever, um, Lila Kinnunen. And this Finnish woman and her mum came up to me and said, I never mm. thought mm. I'd hear this outside. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and I, to me, I was. You think, must have a few of those stories. I have quite yeah. a few of those. Yeah. I have quite a few. Um, <laughs> People who have asked, where did you get that Spanish version of this, that, or the other thing? I've yeah. always, and I think, you know, I, I'm grateful for my time in Montreal and Berlin, where I think there, well, certainly in Montreal, there was, you know, a bit of a kind of a cheekiness to some of the DJing. But when I got to Berlin, and you would go to various bars and just kind of anything went, it just kind of, it just kind of made it very clear to me that if you do this right, um, 
people can have a great time to really terrible music. I, I, I don't think it's terrible, but yeah. I think there's this idea that if you if you can get them in the right space, you can get away with a lot. And I would think yeah, that yeah. part of it is the pleasure for me is getting away with something on the dance floor. And if I can see people smile and, and laugh... Yeah. Um, and I've actually found exactly where that line is because one time I played... Um, Stuck on Earth by Elf, the twelve inch, <laughs> right. and it was the most excruciating six minutes of everyone's life, yeah. but particularly mine. And uh, and uh, so I won't ever do that again. <laughs> it felt like such a good idea at the time. Yeah, I know. You know? I mean, so I've, I've had a couple of moments like that too, where just something just completely kills the mood. So yeah, um, and the thing you thought was going to be. <laughs> funny or quirky it just isn't it's just like what's yeah. happening here yeah i think i mean i'm i miss but you negotiate that well i think i well i try generally. to i think you know i always describe you know if i think about how i approach music the, the thing there are things that i play on the radio that i won't play at home yeah there are things that i'll play in the club that i won't play at home there's things yeah. that i'll play at home that i'll never play on the radio or at the at a club it's just i mean i i they're discrete zones for me and they yeah. and i perform and act differently in each one of those yeah. contexts right i approach them with a different sort of you know Oh yeah, I mean, I worked. In, I worked in record stores for a while, and back when we had them, and um, <laughs> and I would, you know, I had all sorts of great shop music that that wasn't just to sell records. That was obviously part of it, and and worked. But just favourites that were great to play in the store, but you couldn't, you wouldn't take them home and play them. Yeah. And then you had your favourites at home that you wanted to keep for home, no matter yeah. even if they would work in the store because yeah. you because you were going to lose your passion for them at home. So yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, it's one of those things that. Um, uh, coming out of uh, radio and and then just kind of moving into you know I'm not I'm not I'm not to everybody's taste so and and, and I know that so I know that there's mm. a that there are people that kind of kind of get what I do and appreciate uh, what I do and I you know there's there's other DJs like people like Andy Votel who runs you know Finders Keepers Records like I opened I did a little opening set before him in Berlin. And my set was was fine, but he totally blew my mind yeah, in terms yeah. of what he could do with the kind of music he was playing. I thought, wow, this is just so out there. And everybody, I mean, part of it is it's Andy Votel. Everybody knows who he is. Yeah, yeah. There, everybody on the dance floor. So he could get away with a lot, but it was just kind of like, yep, that guy can't put a record back to back. There's no beat matching going on here. He's just slamming them together and it works. And it was just that kind of moment where I thought, yeah, if you approach this with a, a bit of a kind of an anything goes, you know, yeah. a curated sense of anything goes, yeah. you can get away with a lot on the dance floor. So there's people that I've seen that I really, really, um, that are just kind of inspirations to me for the way they can just put something together that just completely um, undermines the rules, a logic. right? Yeah, yeah or a logic, logic of sort, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and and I'm I'm not logical because I will change genres. I'm going to go from French yay yay to Belgian yeah. synth pop. I'm not. I can't. I can't. It's like I've got attention deficit disorder. I can't stick to genre. I don't do genre. I do geography, right? It's yeah, me. I just yeah. move across times and times and places, and that to me is the more f that that's the most fun for me. Not for everybody, but um, I remember finding a the a, a box of CDs under my house recently that are just old promos and one of them was the John Peel fabric mix oh, and I was yeah. like that's <laughs> superb because all of the fabric DJs were like mixes yep you know really and there was some great 
amazing stuff, but it was very in the house kind of tradition. Yeah, and then yeah. John Peel did this set where he just played Britpop <laughs> and, and and you know his 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 old sort of punk favourites. Yeah. And some weird remixes were in there as well, and it was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's one of those figures too. I think yeah. that you know you kind of look at um, as a kind of. You know, as an icon. Yeah, I was going to say he's a figurehead anyway, right? So he's it's that, just like, yeah. Well, part of it again. I think I always think. I mean, I'm just just. I was fortunate enough to come of musical age when I was 12, 13, 14, 1980, 81, 82, into 83, and just and finding this, finding a radio station, and then finding friends that were, you know, into this weird music, right? Mm. That. Um, was was just just erupting and was starting to it was still kind of underground you had to go to if you wanted to go to a club you had to go to an all ages bar or something like we used to drive into toronto and go to a place there um but you know friends would you would bring records to school and you'd go to their place and listen to them and it was just and we and we would go into we would take the train into Toronto. We'd read the Enemy uh, or Melody Maker like from cover to cover, and those were our Bibles. So it was just this mm. kind of it was it was so much a part of my growing up. The the you know going into Toronto. It was about half an hour by train to get into Toronto. Have to take you know there were certain record stores you would go to, you'd read the enemy and then you'd go to try to find the single. So it was like an yeah. immediate kind of yeah. thing, right? Um, like a treasure uh, map. <laughs> but it was just this kind of this is explosion of sounds that, you know, the, wouldn't necessarily go together. I mean, you know, listen to the Cramps and Depeche Mode. I mean, mm. this was like this was your it just didn't make any sense. Or Flux of Pink Indians and you know, ABC. It was just this kind of polyglot of sounds that just kind of primed you for a whole range of things right it just kind of opened your ears um so i i was fortunate to have access to all those different kinds of media that and and friends who kind of shaped my musical tastes so i was i'm just on facebook i was just um chatting with a friend who I'd put up an old Japan single or something like that, you know, from the mid-70s. mid And he was like, oh, you kind of introduced me to this band in 1982 or 1983. It's like, fantastic. This guy is doing doing graphic design for Amy Mann albums, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. this, I mean this, is, this is the... I mean, it's just... I'm fortunate for, for all those people. I, as I guess most of us who are into music are grateful for... Mm-hmm. Um, for for the friends that we had who could sort of switch us on to things, but also just that moment where things hadn't quite hardened into a kind of an ideology, right? Yeah, there was the synth poppers versus the rockers, but I think there were there were people that sort of sat in between, right? So, and that was that moment. And I I read you know read Simon Reynolds' mm. "Rip It Up and Start Again," mm. right, which is exactly that point in time. It's just it just felt. It felt like a world was opening up rather than closing down, right? It was still this kind of kaleidoscopic, um, this just the sounds and the videos and everything else. It just so that really is a kind of watershed moment for me. And being that age when most of us are kind of getting into music, just anything seemed possible. You know, there were certain things that maybe I didn't listen to. I was never a fan. You know, I can remember when 
Bruce Springsteen was kind of in the air. It's like, no. Like, so there were things that we didn't listen to. Mm. Um, but there were the, but there were still possibilities, and I think that's always shaped how I've approached. I just want to hear interesting. But you'd find music. something, right? Like so, if you had to or, or wanted to, you'd either find something about Bruce Springsteen that you liked, the one song, or you might, and it might be by fluke, but you might find some exotic cover. Yeah, and you, it's not like you wouldn't take that on board because you've blanked Bruce Springsteen. No, no, no. Yeah, that's what oh, I mean. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. I mean about your openness is that, yeah. you know, if there was some, I don't know what, but if there's some killer, well, there's probably several killer disco versions of Pink Cadillac, which is a Bruce Springsteen <laughs> song. So, you know, yeah. there's always a way in. Yeah, I think that's the way. That's that. I think that's my approach, right, is there's always a way in. It's like, the, you know, music will always be interesting to me and I'm, I'm always interested in people's relationship to music. I may not like the music that they like but mm. you know they care about it for various reasons and mm-hmm. um i mean i think it you know at some level you know you don't do a radio show without thinking that you're trying to shape some people's musical taste or their outlet right um unfortunate that i've worked in radio i mean effectively since 1985 i've been doing radio um but it's radio that doesn't have any kind of commercial constraints, mm, mm, right? Mm. So I've been quite lucky. And again, a free reign almost. A free yeah. reign, but yeah. also, you know, bound up in a world of weird music, right? Weird music and, and people that are passionate about the music and have cared about the music and want to share that music um, and want you to listen to that music often quite forcefully, yeah, yeah. right? But, the, you know, there's something about um, being in that world where it's not programmed, it's, it's, not, it's not beholden any kind of, you know, commercial logic. It's about, there's something about that that has just kind of meant that I'm a bit more open to looking for things that are a little bit more eccentric, mm. a little bit. I mean, I you know there there are certain things that I, you know, as I get older, I I certainly not up on a lot of contemporary music. It's easier yeah. to kind of look back. I'm kind of fulfilling my demographic well, destiny. Not, a, not only that, but there's still stuff to find that from way back, right? Yeah, well, that's all. You know, there's that. There's and this is this is the beauty of yeah. you know of of the introduction of new formats and new media. There's mm. always archives that people can kind of mm. eventually get into and finding an excuse to release some obscure sort of Turkish, you know, psych from 1972 yeah, or 73, yeah, yeah. right? That Cumbia explosion. That yeah, happened. exactly. Yeah. A few years ago yeah, was amazing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's like I mean, you know, I always think about this in relationship to garage rock. It's like, how much more garage rock can we find from Peru? It's like, well, yeah. apparently Heaps. there's more. <laughs> yeah, it's just like lots. this kind of bottomless. You know, it's like yeah. it's just a bottomless. You know, sea of, of of music that eventually finds its way to the surface. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think you know, a, a lot of us are kind of you know going to want to kind of vouch for that stuff and are going to want to push it in some way. So Mm-mm. it's just part of it is... Um, I found that, um, that, I think they were Croatian, the Bambi Molesters. Oh, yeah. And I played, uh, I, I posted a track from them the other day because they came and played at an arts festival here oh, yeah. in, in probably 2002 or four <laughs> yeah. or something like that. And it was good fun. And I But I played the track Wanganui and someone commented on it and I said, you know, the brilliant thing about this was... They came to New Zealand looking to go and surf at Wanganui. Someone had to sort of point out to them there's a muddy river and no coastline, <laughs> and they didn't know that. They just thought it sounded like 
Waikiki. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> but also Wanganui, a great surf rock yeah. you know, town. A lot of surf rock coming out of there. So there is some good stuff there. Is, there. There is some connection there. Yeah. That, that, that's right. But I mean, that isn't it? It's it's fun to be reminded of that stuff and just yeah. find those. You know, the, they were never my favorite band. I saw them once. I thought they were fun in the moment. Yeah. But yeah. So, something probably probably an algorithm led me to them, um, and I hadn't thought about them for close to twenty years. And yeah. but but there it was, and it was like, well, this is worth this yeah. is worth consuming for a bit. <laughs> you know, this, this isn't hurting anyone. Yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what are you, what about um, I mean media studies is more than music and as you've explained like what what you've done is is taken a different route than just the history of popular music that Roy was 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 running but where do the other um, aspects of media within media studies come into your areas of interest um, well I always you know, I'm quite fortunate, again, to come out of... Um, so I did my PhD in communications and art history. And, um, you know, the Canadian communication tradition is, you know, Marshall McLuhan and all that, mm. um, Harold Innes and others. Um, that, that has meant that I've kind of thought about media quite broadly. So I always kind of joke that it's not something you just plug into a wall, right? Um, I understand. So I've taught courses on food and drink as mm. social media, what mm. I call the other social media, right? Which is So that's kind of an area of interest that I'm starting to explore is food and drink. So, you know, the, the kind of the project that I'm interested in at the moment is writing a history, in, in fact, a kind of cultural history of contemporary Wellington. So from about 1986 up till now, right? Um, where I would look at, you know, how wine, coffee, and craft beer shaped kind of the, the kind of the civic culture in the city. So how people kind of, the relationship between kind of social ritual and social regulation. So the way in which there's been this kind of explosion of a, uh, of a kind of a civic life here around consuming things like wine, coffee, and craft beer, right? Which is about a certain kind of connoisseurship, which is about a certain kind of, you know, middle-classness here. It's primarily Pakiha, but it's also, it's also wrapped up in that kind of, that myth of Wellington as the kind of creative cultural capital yeah. of New Zealand, whether that's waning or not, right? But you know, all those things you 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 don't get you don't get coffee without wine, right? You so that's a kind of that's a way in which you're, you're you're training people how to conduct themselves as kind of cosmopolitans, right? So when the when the marketplace uh, for wine in New Zealand opens up, meaning that New Zealand wine growers mm. and winemakers have to compete with a global market. They do it really quickly, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that basically, so that trains palates, but it trains people also how to be good kind of, you know, urbanites. Um, what it means to go out, what it means to socialize. Um, and that then sort of anticipates coffee. So the palate's been trained to look for sort of things. But it's also, it's also creating a certain kind of set as sort of social contours in the city, right? Which then sets up craft beer. So all these things um, start to shape the uh, Wellington in really quite profound ways, right? They're, they create kind of, you know, a cafe culture, a restaurant culture, all those sorts of things. Um, it celebrates a kind of DIY culture, 
but it also has to kind of contend with the fact that, well, there's also these issues of, you know, public drunkenness, all those sorts of things. So all those social rituals get kind of caught up in policies around social regulation. So I'm quite fascinated in how that kind of DIY culture is a manifestation of a kind of entrepreneurial neoliberal culture. I'm interested in the way in which Wellington starts to imagine itself as a cosmopolitan place in light of what these things allow, right? So wine and coffee in particular, right? As Athfield said, you know, Wellington, you know, the creative life of Wellington would be, would be nothing without coffee, right? Facilitates conversations, mm-hmm. right? So it facilitates moments where people are coming together in, in kind of informal ways uh, and new projects are hatched and those sorts of things. So so I'm, I see sort of food and drink as what I call those other social media, which facilitate... Mm. Um, new kinds of social relationships, creative relationships, partnerships, new sorts of ideas. And I, I, I think, you know, modern, you know, Wellington from the mid-1980s onwards, it's hard to imagine without wine, coffee, or craft beer. Um, they, do a, they do a lot of work. They do, they do a lot of labor to make things possible um, at the same time that they also create certain kinds of particularly wine and beer um certain kinds of dilemmas that the Mm. city has to kind of confront Mm. in a way right so we can incite you to drink but we need to actually also kind of contain it so it's all this kind of balancing act between you know the city council and policy police and you know students and the people that run the the cafes and the bars and everything else so i quite i quite like those that idea that you're talking about these different kinds of liquids that are kind of giving shape to you know contemporary Wellington culture because they they enable certain things to happen mm. at the same time that you know those those things that do happen have to be managed in ways controlled surveilled um, in in some fashion so they're both you know they open things up but they then tend to kind of create some borders need to be put in place so mm-hmm. i think it, it's interesting to tell the history of contemporary wellington through wine coffee and craft beer i think that's an interesting story to tell mm-hmm. and as a as a non-new zealander that that moved here i mean i you know i imagine um from how i know you 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 moved here as a drinker rather than a teetotaler but uh, what did you observe about our drinking culture that was different from the one you grew up in uh, well, I have a confession to make. I didn't. I I got drunk once when I was fourteen and didn't drink for till I till I came here in nineteen ninety three ninety four. Right. Oh, so, so we, I remember we, we, getting. We, absolute, so that's how bad our culture is. We turned you. Ad, yes, You've yeah. answered my question. I got absolutely <laughs> hammered on cask wine <laughs> on Oriental Parade in nineteen ninety three nineteen ninety four, and that was the yeah. <laughs> that was I hadn't that. had a drink in like nine or ten years wow. at that point in time. Um, so, I mean, coming from a place like Montreal where the drinking age is 18, we used to joke that you'd always see bikes parked outside of the pubs. Mm. Um, you know, there was, and then, you know, then being in, in Europe for a little bit, you got a sense that this is, they're just a bit more kind of on top. But I'd been to a fair number of English cities, um, and not just the, the big ones, where I'd seen the kind of drinking culture there. Mm. And... I never really lived in Toronto proper, so I never saw what went on there. But I knew people that went to university, you know, when I was in Montreal. Montreal, the culture was definitely a big drinking culture on campus. 
Um, but when you went out, it was very different. It was much more kind of, you know, cool. Much more, you know, people got drunk, but it was never the kind of things that I would eventually see here. I mean, Courtney Place... That that looked very much like a kind of a, a northern English city to me when I came here. I just thought I'd seen this as these be, these people are underdressed. Mm. It's the middle of winter. Yeah, um, they're legless. They can barely stand. Um, and I can remember because I, I uh, and I knew you know I would teach a, I would give a lecture on a Thursday morning and Wednesday was the student night out here right and there would students wouldn't be coming to class at all so I kind of knew the rhythms of it all right. Um, I mean, I thought it was, I still think it's one of those kind of weird, it was a kind of puritanical prudishness, but there's this, there is a kind of reticence. Um, it, it reminded me a little bit of Finland, to be honest, where, you know, lots of people joke about the stoicism Finns, you know, um, and they only kind of open up once they've had a whole lot of vodka or salmiakikoskin uh, korva, whatever. Uh, then they're their best friends. It was a little bit the same here. Like it was, mm. it was a lubricant, right? It was a kind of a social lubricant, and people really kind of opened up once they'd had um, a, a bit to drink. Um, and you know, everybody talks. The first thing people talk about on a Sunday or a Monday morning was how absolutely smashed they were on the weekend, uh, and that was that was kind of new to me. It was never really mm. that was never really how you started the week, and that was not a part of the conversation that I had, right? <laughs> but here it was kind of like the, the done thing. It was like the measure like of how good your weekend middle was. class it was, survivor's tale, wasn't yeah, it? A little bit. <laughs> I mean, I've always you know I, I like my drink, but I can certainly see that it's it's. That you, New Zealanders drink in a way that you know it eh, feels different to most feels other different. I, I, I lived in I, I'm living in Australia for a year. I saw a bit of that, but there was there you know there's something kind of sometimes a little desperate about it here. You know, it just feels like they drink to drink to oblivion. Yeah, it's it's. I was gonna say it's drinking to it's always drinking to catch up in one way or another. Mm. You know, it's all. It's pe- people are often a drink or two behind someone else, or, yeah. or where they want to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So. Whereas I've noticed in Australia, there's a massive drinking culture, particularly around, um, you know, labouring and stuff. But mm. a lot of it is to beat the heat. A yep. lot of it is half a dozen beers, and then that's it for the night. You yeah. know, and you start drinking at three p.m. and you finish at seven p.m. Or, yeah. or you steadily drink at home and you don't go out and you're drinking it like you might drink chilled water. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously that's a huge generalisation. There's all sorts of other forms. Yeah. But I, I think there's more of that, when I, certainly when I've been in Australia, than, than, than here. Yeah. I've always, I mean, it's, it's the, the fact that when you walk into a bar... Or a venue, like the the things you see are all the kind of regulations around drinking, like not being served. So I mean, it, it's quite a interesting part of kind of the public culture here is all the things you can't do or shouldn't be doing, mm-hmm. right? That's kind of there, and you know they're legally obligated to have those kinds of announcements. The you know when you walk into a venue, but it just to me it's a kind of a sign, literally a sign of you know well this this is what we have to kind of this is what we have to contend with here so mm. don't do that um but that's just the nature of you know 
how people feel they need to kind of loosen up here is just to drink a little bit more and then a little bit more so yeah. mm-hmm. now so you've 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 published quite a lot you've published quite a few books and 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 uh, well articles within books and mm. edited and so what are you working on at the moment well, at the moment, nothing, uh, I won't say it's not necessarily original research, but I'm just sort of working on a few handbooks, uh, which are just kind of uh, collections of people writing various things. So one on sort of music space and place, for example. Um, these are kind of academic books, so they're mm. not they're going to be stupidly expensive for the public. So they're going to sh- and for academics for that matter. So they're going to end up sort of shelved in a in a library somewhere. But you know, it's kind of a it's in a, you know, why does that? Why does that happen? Because I occasionally look up a book online that I've seen mentioned somewhere, and I see like even the Kindle version of it is like ninety three dollars or something, yeah. and yeah. I, I don't know quite why why that is. Well, is I it around it. various permissions and so forth? No, or? no, 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 no. Well, I would say you know if you're if you're working in pop music, um, publishers, it's it's pretty darn near impossible to reproduce lyrics. Yeah, yeah. So the permissions are not a thing, and typically those would be paid for by the author, so the publisher's yeah. not going to bear that cost. Now, academic publishing, for lack of a better term, is a bit of a racket. So right. yeah, it's, yeah. Well, that, it's, was, that was what I arrived at, but yeah, I yeah. didn't know if that was the case. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's criminally Why expensive. Not? It's, <laughs> Why not? It's effectively, there's very few publishers uh, mm. out there, and they effectively own the marketplace, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, like I, I think the the volume that one of the volumes that I was working on, um, which I have one entry, um, I think there might be thirty or thirty five other entries, um, one hundred and seventy euro for the book. Wow! So only yeah, lo- yeah. again, so it's it's quite interesting, you know when. And what what you get sent one author copy if you're lucky kind of thing with that probably. Well, in that in that <laughs> case, yeah. It's other things I've yeah. done. I've you know you get a few more copies. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, academic publishing. It's not you're you're not going to get written up in the maybe you'll get written up in the London Review of Books, but mm. you're not getting written up in the guardian or spin if you're writing about pop music right this is just not that's mm. not your audience your audience is other academics so mm. yeah oh one thing I, I i don't want to jinx it but one of the things that um i am proposing um the 33 and a third series you oh know yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so one of the so they've typically been looking at kind of north america mm. bit of europe but there's now a kind of Australasian um, couple of editors, and I've, I'm putting forward um, uh, the Boodle 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 EP. Oh, nice. I want to write about yeah. that. I want to write about it in, in That's ways a good that. a choice, too. Like, <coughs> well, in terms of. I've, I've thought about it once. Yeah. I, I got really close to putting in a submission, and mm. then I was like, oh, this is a lot of work for. Yeah, well, I mean, I, my approach is... Which sounds terrible. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds so slack, but, you know. Oh, I know. Well, you, you've done your fair share, you know. Yeah, you, yeah. You, um, but when I was... Um, so the the editors, all the submissions so far have been Australian-based, right? Mm. So um, they put a call out, say, hey, anybody want to write about something from New Zealand? I said... Well, it's not really an album per se, but it's kind of is though. It eh? kind of is. Thing. I mean, yeah. it's kind of it's legendary, yeah. right? And it's and, a record, you yeah. Know? Like it's in everyone's mind. It's yeah. a record. Yeah, so yeah. that I makes mean, it an album. <laughs> so that's how I kind of thought about it. Yeah. So, but I'm, you know, my interest in in the clean is, you know, is is 
as one of my favorite New Zealand bands, um, is really in part the kind of mythology that that they both create and that people get caught up in, right? It's 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 a real dilemma. So this is that's kind of the premise of this book is just kind of exploring that particular kind of mythology around Dunedin um, and how it's both the kind of a blessing and a curse. So that's mm-hmm. kind of how I've been thinking about it. Um, you know, it's a now it's a few decades old, but that's I kind of it's also they're also one of the bands the first bands that I got into and then I that sort of spurred my academic writing the first mm. academic article that, that I ever wrote was about these New Zealand music fans in North America um, so you know they're they're kind of bound up in my professional mm-hmm. and you know my professional career and also my personal taste so so in the sort of Nick Hornby sense of it um, you you know it's it's music criticism as memoir or music commentary as memoir yeah. really isn't it yeah, which, which which arguably almost all, all apart from strict academic yeah. is yeah 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 well I always think you know Simon Reynolds is another person that I kind of look to as someone who does a bit of that sort of stuff right I, mm. I've always you know he was one of those people that you know looked like he brought a bit of theory into his writing in in ways that sometimes it fell a little forced but I've you know. I've always appreciated his approach to, to music. He's he's um, he's found a balance in a way, and I think yeah. he's got some really good insights. David Stubbs, another one as well, yeah, that I yeah. think is great in terms of, you know, somebody obviously somebody who was writing for the music press, um, you know, and it, at a time when I was probably stopped reading, and I think you know I gave up on the enemy and Melody Maker probably when I went to university. To be honest, just didn't. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't interested in music in this not not music writing in the same way. So yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. it, it'd kind of clued you up. Yeah. Like you, you you know, you were off on your own journey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah. I'd read enough. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it had been part of the foundation and then you're yeah. off. Maybe I was reading a bit of Wire because my tastes were kind of going in a direction. But I started, I remember when I moved to Montreal, I started relying a lot more on record stores. I actually mm. went in and talked to people at their record stores, right? And they would switch you on to bands, local bands, international bands. And you just kind of... It was that moment when, uh, and I'm in Montreal for the first time, and just kind of listening to other music, music that's coming from Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Which you didn't hear in Toronto, right? There, there was a, there was a wall. Like Quebec was its own world, right? It connected with the kind of francophonie uh, in ways that the rest of Canada did not at that point in time, right? It had its own music video station, right? It had music plus. Um, we had much music, right? Um, in, in, in the Anglo world. In the Francophone world, it was connected with Europe in ways that just kind of, again, that's another, that was a kind of transformative moment. Mm. Like, and also had a, a really strong connection with dance and disco culture, right? Which again, I think is kind of formative for me, right? I, my, the first place I lived in, in Montreal, was on Stanley Street, and right at the bottom of it was this place called Thunderdome. <laughs> and we would go there almost every weekend. And it was like... I, five bucks to get in and you'd hear Anne Clark at the Peshmod you'd hear all this French stuff that was like what I mean that was just a whole new world to me so I started to orient to to the francophone side of things as well so that was another kind of fortunate circumstance but that so being in Montreal learning to you know navigate music stores record shops um, the clubs there 
Um, and just being in that kind of space to experiment and explore was mm. really kind of important. Like being in a new city in, in you know, a quite a unique place in all of North America where you felt, oh, this is quite, this is quite out of time and place. This is, this is, I'm in Canada, but it's, it's got some other connection going on here that the rest of Canada knows really nothing about in a way. It doesn't care to know anything about, so... Um, it was also, an, a, you know, a kind of a, a, an opening into an awareness of what, you know, made that province quite distinct, mm. you know, and very, very um, unique. Um, and so I'm, I'm not a separatist or a sovereignist, but I certainly had a lot of sympathies with uh, everything that they were on about as well. So, and I knew a lot of um, political people, so... Um, it was, yeah, again, that was really kind of important. Mm, mm. Hey, um, with your um, Bodle book, if, if 33 and a third thing doesn't happen, will you do it anyway? Feels like uh, you might. Uh, yeah. It's sort I mean, of something that OUP like, or someone uh, like that could yeah, maybe look at. To me, to me, I feel like so. Like, or is it about being part of that? series it's not really i mean i think what, what i think what the series allows is a license to be a little yeah less academic yeah, right yeah. strictly academic but combine but bring that in when you need to or yeah you whereas i think oup would want something a little bit more formally academic yeah, i yeah. always think of you know one of my favorites and i think it's a lot of people's favorites is the carl wilson book on city and Deal, oh, yeah, right? yeah 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 which got which so, got expanded yeah yeah <laughs> Just, 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 he and I were at McGill at the same time, actually. Oh, right. <laughs> I used to read his stuff. He used to write for the McGill Daily, which was the kind of the lefty um, um, university newspaper. There were a couple. Yeah. Um, and I always liked his stuff. I was very, just going to say, was writer. he always good? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was a very smart writer. I was yeah. like, and I would, it was quite funny. Uh, I mean, I've never, uh, I kind of followed his career a little bit because he then moved into the Global Mail and he wrote for one of the, mm. you know, one of the national newspapers. Um, very, very, very kind of astute, smart guy. So I've always, you know, I see him. We're not friends on Facebook, but I, I see him showing up on other people's yeah, yeah. feeds. I'm like, yeah, that guy. It's like, I remember him writing reviews of Billy Bag Bragg con- yeah. uh, concerts in 1988, 89, something like that. Yeah. So, um, but his book, I thought, was, yeah, that's the kind of model that I like, right? A bit of theory, but not not kind of hammering it home. Mm. Good balance of you know insight and and the topic is well, Celine Dion, so um, it's quite rich. So I like that series for what it allows you to do in terms of yeah yeah you escape the confines a little yeah you don't you don't have to write. Um, you don't have to do the lit review. You don't have to do mm. the kind of things that academic writing kind of has built into it in a way, um, and it lets you it lets you personalize it as well in a way, which it's I think a, is kind of important. It's a big series now. Are they up around yeah. 150? Oh, it must be. I don't know. Well, the fact I, that they're read, branching out. So. I read all of them right up until about 110. All right. Yeah. And then I've just started. Every now and then I yeah. grab something that I can't keep up anymore, but yeah. I, I made a good effort. Yeah, I've, I've read there a, are fair a few. few amazing ones. The other really good one is who is the novelist who did Fear of Music? Oh, Jim right. One. Yeah, That's right. really good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a few like that too where they've got like people who are more known as as creative writers, novelists, have, yeah. have done good jobs with, yeah. with them. Yeah, so that's why I like about that series. Yeah. So if it if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. I'm not too worried about it. But mm. I, I feel like, uh, as I'm starting to think about how would I put that together, I think I've got enough to kind of go on. I'd love to actually sit down and have a chat with the Kilgars and, and Robert Scott um, 
and get a sense of their take on things. You know, what are we at? We're f- almost 40 years later, so mm. quite interesting, mm. you know. So. You'd get three completely different takes as well. I could I imagine. Would, I, would, I would think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, be which quite, is perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, th- th- they're all still making music in yep. some form or other, yep. so, you know, still a kind of, I think, uh, a, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of other albums, th- uh, New Zealand albums, that, um, you know, you would be better sort of schooled on this than I, but I think that that is kind of iconic. It's a landmark record. It well, does... Um, mental notes is the oh, other yeah, one I yeah, I think right, of yes. obviously yeah um, it's yeah. a big one <clears throat> a big one in my life and and I feel like that would be but but it's not as well travelled as something like Boodle or, or right. anything flying nun related you know I, I yeah. feel like that is such an important iconic New Zealand album but really only New Zealand and Australia and that's yeah. it yeah I mean I know there are Split Ends fans in America and there are people around the yeah. world that have got to that and love it but I don't I think, think it's the same I, I think there's this I mean you know my experience of Split Ends was through the singles I don't yeah. think there was ever that's it uh, that's the thing and that's a completely I mean that listening to that now it's like listening to a Genesis album you know <laughs> yeah, right, like an yeah. early Genesis album or yeah. King Crimson or something like that It's it really is quite proggy and I think like for the purposes of the 33 and a third or something maybe True Colours is a better yeah, right. option yeah, yeah, yeah you know that's probably the only other one I mean yeah. obviously anything that you know the, the crowded house stuff that comes afterwards yes. would be more obvious yeah um, but even then that's kind of actually it'd be quite interesting where people would sort of situate mm. that Australia mm. New Zealand so um, yeah I think there's yeah there aren't there aren't um, there, I mean then you start getting into things like, really you have to start getting into things like the first Lord album don't you like in terms of them being like internationally recognised yeah, I think this is what's quite interesting about the kind of the regional series because I kind of think obviously there's going to be a fair few uh, Australian um, albums that mm, you can you, mm. that, that you know yeah for the most part would have you know your ACDCs yes um, but even then I'm starting to think maybe a midnight oil record but international success for a lot of Australian yeah. acts is like you know these Saints mm, again limited appeal yeah yeah go betweens mm, great. But yeah, yeah, again, very limited. And they appeal. don't really, yeah, they they cracked little pockets in Europe yeah, exactly. more than more than big yeah. places in America. You yeah, know? exactly. Even so. Midnight Oil in their in their die in their dying days of the band. Yes, that's right. Where they were at their biggest, uh, you know, their American their final American tour was a fiasco. So no, they, was it really? Yeah, yeah, they really struggled. Yeah, I think there's. So I mean, I think that the idea is that ultimately these would be kind of it would be a regional market for mm, mm. for them. So it's going to be yeah, Australians yeah. and New Zealanders yeah, going to be reading right. this stuff anyway. So yeah, yeah. But yeah. Oh, that's that's a cool project and a great well, idea. And a great see, idea I mean, what, for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah let's yeah. see what happens. I yeah. mean, this is something I'm. Uh, I was I put forward their, the editor is keen Bloomsbury will see I still owe them a couple of books so we'll see I need to get all those things done by end of December and then this thing would be for next year so that's the plan and what did um, <coughs> what did dare I ask what did lockdown mean for you oh lockdown for me um, I'm a I'm a you know I'm a solitary person I yeah. always say right I'm a Bit of a loner, bit socially awkward, I guess, in times. <laughs> uh, but um, 
Yeah, it was it was a challenge. I was I was teaching still, so I still had a big first year uh, media studies paper that I had to get together and deliver. And during lockdown, I was giving little kind of lecturettes I referred to them as, and kind of workshops on research and writing. I mean, these are all first year students that you know, trying to, for the first time mm. in their, you know, getting out of their small town, many of them, this is the big smoke for them, yeah. hoping for all kinds of things to happen. And three weeks in, yeah. some of them had to go yeah. home. So, I mean, it was it was a real challenge because, A, you know, my own, uh, you know, I suffer from a kind of low-grade depression anyway. Um, that certainly was amplified um, then having to deal with students who were also struggling, that's, that's very difficult. You 300 students who, um, not all of them are struggling, but they're, they're really, really um, unhappy, stressed, anxious, uncertain. Um, they're trying to learn new things uh, at the same time. And, I, you know, so, and... I was I am head of school, so I also had to deal with a lot of staff who were stressed out, um, and we're all trying to figure this out together. Mm. Nobody knows the way forward, right? Mm. Um, and I think you know there were certainly dark phases during lockdown for me, as there were for lots of people. Um, you know, I've got family back home in Canada. Um, mother who's who can't get sick. This will, mm. you know, she can't get this. So, those were concerns as well. Um, and I mean, I, I I think I like to think that we all helped one another, um, students, the staff, and my friends here. Um, you know, we managed to kind of make our way through it, it as you kind of had to. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were quite fortunate that we didn't have any cases so that were out in the wild in Wellington in any serious way, right? So it just, um, we got through it, but we're not through it yet. I think, um, you know, lockdown was a challenge. I think we're still going to be facing some challenges going forward. The universities. Mm going to deal with some serious issues around its revenue yeah, right yeah. i mean it's got it's so we're not out of the dark yet i think that there's there's going to be some big changes at the university in the in the next few months um and and those are those are scary and frightening and um th those are going to be um those are, it's going to be a tough fight so Lockdown was it was quite interesting because when you talk to people about like everybody eventually came kind of came around to lockdown mm. like yeah we did that mm. it's it's what came afterwards that yes. I find quite intriguing <laughs> it's like they're they're less willing I think uh, you know a certain complacency and smugness kind of settled into New Zealand so when you yeah. start asking people to then start you know well we need to move down or up a level yeah you know people people kind of resented a, it as a middle way. class survivor's tale like yeah. i got my badge i didn't buy the t-shirt but yeah. if they had them i would i survived yeah. lockdown that yeah. was sort of the attitude i think and we've done that yeah i think yeah it was yeah, kind of like we've done that, that and i'm not going to do it again it that's was right. sort of a slight kind of resentment that yeah we and you put me out i coped with it yeah you're not giving me a, a medal yeah so i'm going to declare that i I deserve one, and I'm not going to listen to you again. Yeah. That's a bit of it, eh? Right. Yeah, but again, it's also part of that kind of 
that that story that New Zealanders like to tell themselves about being laid back and kind of taller. It's like, no, I, I, no, this is not the case. Yeah. We're seeing this kind of, you know, there are eruptions and, um, you know, the the team of five million, which I, you know, we're so chilled out. We have to remind ourselves and anyone that will listen that we're chilled out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I, you know, it's going to be a challenge for all of us. It was definitely lockdown was tricky. I mean, I think I I think I went two and a half, almost three weeks without, you know seeing or talking to another human face to face i had one friend who's my kind of bubble buddy and she lived in brooklyn mm. she lived on her own so we worked together so she did a couple of grocery runs but she was really effectively the only person i saw for ages so right. it was uh, you know i tried to try to do the dj thing on facebook and twitch to yeah. kind of yeah you know connect and just to break myself out of the funk in a way but that became kind of tricky as well so it's about um, to become trickier. Yeah, yeah, it's not going yeah, <laughs> to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit over that. I, it's yeah. just a bit too much a hassle yeah, to yeah. deal with it. So I don't. I, I'm not tricky on DJing online anymore. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's well, it's just interesting because I was thinking, like, on one level, you know, you're a you're a guy obsessed with a whole lot of pop culture that probably lives in your head a fair amount of the time. So if the work component had been removed the things you know there would have been a whole level of stress removed right like yeah i mean you still have your personal stresses as everyone does but but what you just described then i think like to me i go wow like having to function on that level and be constantly adapting to deliver things yeah Yeah, it was a which which you were not alone in that as you said like lots of people had that but yeah i mean i was because of my i guess my position yeah i'm you know, I've, 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 I'm responsible for people's, you know, ensuring that they're learning, but I'm also, at, you know, I'm also ensuring that they're keeping themselves together and can't mm. keep themselves together. Mm. So it's, and at a moment when everything is uncertain and up in the air and nobody really knows how to deal with this, you know, it was a, it was a lot of ad hoc. It was a lot of listening a lot of being open to other people's I mean, part of it was just absorbing a lot of people's other stress mm. which is which was a real challenge um i i, I think i managed it pretty well i like to think i mm. you know part of it is just creating spaces where those people can kind of vent and air things out right for staff and students yeah. right? finding those spaces that allows people to you know get something out that's and 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 being vulnerable and 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 being compassionate and and i'm not always very good at those things um but it was so it was a bit of a learning curve but i think i think it got there and i again i didn't do it alone so it was it was you know working with people that that do care about others care about their students being able to share and do things collectively so because ultimately you know we we're not going to get through this alone um and just finding that space where we can share in a way and i mean that took it took a bit of time Mm. um but it it was quite interesting during lockdown when you start some people who you thought were going to do very well didn't and others who you were weren't sure they they excelled and they yeah. just kind of stepped up and did things and that was you know which is the amazing thing about um human nature in general isn't it and yeah. and, and the assumptions that we make and um 
And I think, and I've said this to a couple of people, but I think there's a kind of deep-rooted PTSD in all of this that, mm. that people, it's going to come out in the months and maybe years to come that people are really not adapting as well as, the, you know, there's a lot of brave facing. And um, yeah. yeah, and I think I think, and that will, and that will result in some resentment. That's going to mm. resent. That's going to mm. result in anger and frustration, and that's going to erupt. And we've seen it, right? We're seeing it happen yeah. now with mm. what's going on in Auckland, right? We can yeah. see that that's kind of galvanizing people that um, feel like um, they're being hard done by, you know, with the lockdown, and so it's it's allowing you know other voices to come up to the surface who are resisting, um, um, who are, want to offer kind of, you know, challenges to, to the government or whatever else is going on, right? So it's, so that kind of, that kind of independent kind of free spirit, libertarian kind of thing, um, not, not particularly well informed or informed in very limited ways yes. is, you know, is starting to flourish, which I think is that's another problem, because um, most New Zealanders seem to be quite sensible about this, right? You know, feels like it, yeah. For the most part, that yeah. they're, you know, I think you're right. This, this, this is going to linger, and this is going to have social consequences mm. um, that are going to go on for a very long time, right? Um, and that's so. This is going to take a lot of work and a lot of, you know. A lot of care and concern, uh, and people are gonna have to pay attention to one another, and that's gonna be. And I think people people kind of resent that. At, yeah. at, at some people will resent that at a certain level. Like the the thought that you have to always think about others is just. We were fine for a moment <laughs> with the team of five million, but I can see that kind of fracturing. It'd be interesting to see what happens with the election and mm. where things go from there. So. Well, I was thinking like for you and and there are other people in your position, but. You know, even if you wanted to just switch off from this completely and go, well, I don't actually really want to follow any of this. I just want to get by. You kind of can't because of the role that you have, because you're dealing with people who are dealing with it. So you kind of need to be across it on on some level so yeah. that outside of your own interest in it, yeah. so that you can manage those frayed mm. uh, personality strains or yeah. whatever you want to call it, those frayed tempers that are coming. I mean, part of the way, you know, part of the, one of the, one of the, the virtues of media studies is that we have to deal with what is current. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not alone in this, um, you know, but I found a way to work this situation into discussions, right? Mm. To, you know, to my first year students. So let's talk about semiotics. Very first, th th second or third week of the course. What can we? How? What can I use it as an example? Well, what's out in the media at the moment? Well, toilet paper, right? So let's talk about that. So it just became a way of um, of demystifying it, but also giving them some kind of critical skills mm. that allows them to, to kind of think through this moment while it's happening. You know, um, the Tiger King starts at the beginning of lockup, right? And I mean, and and how very quickly that gets forgotten by the end of lockup. Yeah, right? Like yeah, these are yeah. all kinds of. I mean, our sense of time is yes. it's all kind of warped in there. I mean, it just you, you know the one mechanism to deal with this uncertainty is to actually kind of figure out a way to grapple with it. Like, how do we? What are we doing in media studies that? will allow us to sort of think through this. We're not going to have any answers, but thinking through it will 
kind of ground us in a way and give us a bit of a distance, even though we're living in it, but to step back wherever we can and sort of think about, okay, what's actually going on here? What's happening here, Mm. right? So, you know, you talk about the metaphor of the bubble. Like, what is, you know, there's just ways in which I and my colleagues were fortunate enough that we could find ways to weave that into this, not in an over, you know, overdetermined or... um, in a contrived way, but but in a way that, well, I actually don't have any answers. Let's mm. do this. Let's work through what, what's going on here. Why why is this metaphor, the bubble, why is this kind of, why is it kind of circulating in the way that it is? What can we do with this? What is it doing to us? How is it shaping us? Um, there are all kinds of kind of moments that mm. I thought were kind of, you know, we would say kind of teachable moments. So like there, there are instances that we could just work with the material that we we're actually all experiencing with. And that makes you, as a kind of a lecturer, as I always say to my students, I don't presume to have any of the answers. All I can do is get you to ask more questions, right? Mm-hmm. So I always say to my students, what we try to do is get you to figure out the right question to ask. So don't presume to know the answers. You know, if you're if you're asking questions, that means you're curious, right? So, you know, first year students can often be a little tricky because they kind of come in thinking they know a lot of things, and then you kind of want to dismantle that. And I always say, well, I've done my job if I've <laughs> taught you how to ask the right question. Mm. So, so it was just like kind of keeping. It was you know, it was terrain that was always yeah. moving. So we, there was no real firm anchor point at which we could say, well, this is what this is. It's like, well, no, it's going to shift next week. So. Mm. So it's um, quite a depressing way to end, really, <laughs> our conversation. No, I, I mean, think it's quite. I think it's quite no, it's good. good. It's good. It's and then it's uh, and that's why I wanted to ask you about it because I was thinking like you would have had to have been adapting the whole time in a in a more public way, I guess, than some people. You know, everyone everyone's job was uh, if they were lucky to retain it mm. was uh, compromised and changed, mm. and some of the. Um, things that happened became better for people. Some and some people found that working at home was a better fit, yeah. and all of that. But a lot of that was centered around jobs where people work quite independently and just deliver things. Mm. Of course, you're going to be able to deliver things better if you're left alone more often. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, giving a lecture over Zoom is was was never I. Deal. It's yeah. not going to be ideal, right? Yeah. I mean, we love, you know, I love that. But the possibility <laughs> of it, rather than shutting down all lectures, is, yeah, insta- yeah, is yeah. instantly better. So you 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 work within those sorts of frameworks, yeah. right? You go, well, this is how do I make this as good as it can be? Yeah. And what can this offer that not offering it obviously would not offer? Like, what and there we do. And there were there were very few scripts because, of course, yeah. we hadn't designed these courses to be online no. courses. They were meant to be delivered live. And I always say. You know, like, you go into a big first-year paper, there's 300-plus students, you're playing to the stadium, right? It's like you don't get that, you don't get the kind of the detail, right? You you, you, you have to kind of make a, a big pitch, and you're talking to the people that are way up there, also conceptually, right? Like, they're not all on the same page. They're coming from all over the place. And that's a little bit different in a, in a Zoom lecture, because you don't, like, in you know, you can see the expression on people's faces, 
mm. in, in the lecture theater and he can respond. It's kind of like that yeah. live act going to see, yeah. you know, it's like, exactly. you know. Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. So if you're just doing everything virtual, whether you're a lecturer <laughs> or a band, it's like yeah. you don't get the kind of the feedback, the right? The, yeah, so the instant. Yeah. students in Zoom are, all you see are just their name, their, their camera's off and their mic's off. You don't yeah. even know if they're in the room. They're just Yeah, they might have just logged in. And <laughs> exactly, then they're gone. Yeah. So, you know, you just, you, you try to make the most of it. Um, in a way, and I think I think from what I understand, most of the students appreciated it. But it was it was definitely not what any of us <laughs> signed up for. Yeah. So it was it was it was tricky, but here we are. So, man, and so um, I don't know. Is is there anything else you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? I feel like we've had a pretty good chat, but <laughs> we've you know we've left out lots, of course, but. Is there anything you wish that I'd um, brought up that you wanted to hit? No, I'm very happy for you to kind of guide this. I'm pretty. I'm just looking at your Muppets record. Right oh there. yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. Which I'm a big fan of that record. Yeah, yeah. That uh, was well. That's that's the reissue, but oh, I have yeah. got the original. And the reason I bought that was because when my son was little, he loved it, and I've I've got the original from when I was whatever yeah. one or whenever it would have come out, and um. And he somehow lost the record, which bugged me. Right. And um, so I bought a replacement copy, the reissue, because I thought, well, it's just been in my life forever. I've got to have it. And I kept the cover. And I'm happy to say about two weeks ago, I found it. Because oh. I've just gone through <laughs> and catalogued every oh, record yeah, right. on Discogs. Oh, so, right. Something nice. I started a couple of times and yeah. gave up. Oh. So I, I wiped my accounts and started a new account and have actually just catalogued my whole record collection. Wow. And in doing that, yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of uh, interesting things that cropped up, but the the I think the two best things that happened for me were apart from you know you, you look at the values of some things and you you get a bit like kind of <laughs> ooh, and and you realise it's all fantasy land. Mm. But there were a couple of things where you're like, oh yeah, that could, and then you also go, oh I've got this, this is gonna be worth a whole lot, and no, it's not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was that. But the two things I think that were most exciting to me were actually finding. The Muppet record, he'd just put it somehow in another cover, which mm. I always figured would happen. So yeah. I found it, and um, and finding that my copy of Fear of Music used to be owned by Simon Gregg, oh, right. which oh, I thought really was nice. pretty cool. Okay. <laughs> I messaged him because his name was in it. I messaged oh, yeah. him and sent him a photo of it, and it had a number, uh, something like ten seventy two or something. And yeah. he was like, "I used to write down like that would be the one thousand and seventy second LP I owned I used to write inside the sleeve the number of them as I got them and he was like I would have sold that when I moved to the UK in 1985 oh, right. I was like, yeah, you yeah. know he knew yeah, yeah. as he as yeah. he does yeah, <laughs> he yeah. knew everything about that it. and yeah. I, and and I said I can't actually remember how long I've had this but I know I've had it for at least you know yeah. five or six years it's kind of it is a bit of that high fidelity moment oh right? totally there was a point I'm sure you're similar to me where I could organize my record collection autobiographically yeah. I could yeah. remember exactly where I mean Discogs has kind of completely thrown that out of whack yes. and I don't really I listen I do Spotify yeah kind of haphazardly distractedly um I mean I think I'm now at the stage where I mean certain parts of my collection I can remember but I just Discogs is just a just become this place where I just you know I don't buy many used records in New Zealand to be honest so mm -mm. I get most of my stuff from overseas so I bet yeah I don't I mean I'm my collection is quite finite now mm. like it used to feel it's it's def I'm definitely reducing it the whole time it's mm. it's bigger than just what's in this room but mm. it's not big mm. um and so but that's just for various 
practicalities around family yes. and, and, yeah. and not, yeah. but not being resented as, as an absolute freak 100% of the time I think has been a crucial move for, for me but but it's um, yeah I mean I, I've, I've got that series I do on my site called The Vinyl Countdown where I'm counting down from 2000 to zero yeah. which was just a random figure and that, mm. it's going to probably work out about right yeah. um, but it was just a, a random idea to start at 2000 and just randomly pick records and sort of try and write about them autobiographically yeah which became a huge bind and <laughs> uh, eventually started just turning into you know very many reviews mm. but it was more sort of about where i had bought it or how it had come into my life than than actually the music on it yeah that's and i'm yeah. down to like i think i'm a, as we speak i think i just published today like the vinyl countdown number 55 so oh, i'm, I'm nearly yeah i'm nearly there that's why i'm seeing it out like mm. i got to about <laughs> i got to about 1200 and was like is this a good idea oh well it's too late and then i got to around 400 and really hated it yeah. uh, and hated myself for it and then i've just gri- sort of gritted through it and now i'm at once i got to 99 i was like home straight home yeah, straight i'm gonna yeah. do it yeah. And then I'm looking forward to... It's becoming a thing where I'm looking forward to completing it. And I know I'm the only person in the world that will ever care about <laughs> completing it. And if there's a person that read most of the entries, yeah, yeah. I don't want to meet them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like, I don't want to know that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think I could... I think I probably just about could still arrange it autobiographically. Mm, somewhere along the line, of just, just because, um, yeah, I don't dig in the same way that I used to, you know, age and just, I mean, the things that I like, I can't find in New Zealand. Um, I've just, yeah, I've got dealers and friends overseas that I buy from now. So, yeah. And what, um, I mean, with regard to sort of holy grails and things that are left for you or think, you know, things that have evaded you, what, what, what is it about the kind of, um, ceremony of it still like do you is there is it about just ticking things off a list and collecting them or you know no i mean i i i i don't i'm not precious about my records if you Mm. saw how i stored my records people would be aghast yeah well same right i mean it's just (laughs) yeah you know i'm not there they're there to be used for me yeah and for you i mean i i i I take them out you know I'm like your son. I put them in the wrong sleeves. Yeah, I yeah. don't. I'm not. I'm. I just can't be so uptight about those sorts yeah. of things. So, I mean, I. Well, I, they're replaceable too, aren't they? Well, most most of, most of them. So, but most of the ones you're going to take out of the house yeah. are either replaceable or you're going to take that little bit of extra care with the odd item that you do want to play, but yeah. you also don't yeah. want beer spilt on it. You're yeah, gonna, yeah, you yeah. are going to find a way to tuck that one straight away in the bag or something. Yeah. You know. But for me, it's I always think where would I where would I want to play this for people to hear because mm. I always want my records to be heard. I mean, for the most part, other than the ones that are kind of things I only listen to at home. But even there, I'd probably hey, listen to this record. I mean, I always think, oh, what will this go with that I already own? So I'm always kind of thinking of compliments and sounds and textures. Like the collection for me is yeah, where you know. Is there, can I imagine this with something else? I always think, you know, I guess most collectors or record buyers always think every new record just helps refresh the collection a little bit yeah. more. Everything sounds different once you add a new record to your collection. It's like, oh, I, I can imagine playing this with this. So I'm always thinking about 
sounds, atmospheres, those things, and how they would fit together, whether it's something for radio, whether it's something I want to play out in a bar. Um, so, you know, holy grails are, are, are there to not be sort of wrapped up in, in plastic, but to actually find their way to a turntable mm. and, to, and to find their way to people's ears. I just, um, I, I like playing music for other people. It's... It, it is a bit, you know, I feel like it's, it is a bit ostentatious, obviously, yeah, but yeah. Um, radio is one of those, one of those places where I feel like, well, I'm just going to play you some stuff that you're probably not really going to hear too many other places. Yeah, you're yeah. Gonna to, you're going to have to, you're going to have to do, and I like, and I like, I feel like I'm, it's a bit of a public service in a way. Yeah. Um, and it's the same at a bar. I just want to play, I, I'm, I can't really do the hits, but. I'm going to play you some fun music. And so Holy Grails, like there's a couple of records that I, you know, I don't know if you know J.P. Massiera. He's a very well-known sort of French producer, mm. 70s. I think he's still around, to be honest. Mm. But there's a record of his, which is just a crazy kind of studio experiment. He was a studio musician, um, producer. Um, and I just, there's a couple of records of his that I would love to find. They're stupidly expensive. They're, and they show up very rarely. But I just... They're kooky, and I'm just like, that's what I want to play on a dance floor. That's what I mm. want to play on the radio. So, um, yeah, there's just a few things out there that I would love to. I would love that to. You've find. got like a little imaginary or, or actually defined list. Like you've got a. Oh, uh, it's kind of up here. In yeah, a that's way, what I mean. So, like yeah. it's 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 not committed to paper, but you know what no. you're kind of looking for. Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah. do you still have that occasional sort of look, and even somewhere you go, it might go all the time or are able to go all the time like a local record store in Wellington if you do go in and have a look do you still think like today might be the day I might find this do you have that I've never uh, well uh, I don't have that in New Zealand yeah so I always these you know, are all things you need to if access, I were, if, sure. yeah. yeah well I mean this one record I mean it's French I think yeah. I, in all likelihood I'm probably going to find it somewhere in Europe so mm. um, the chances of this record showing up here are pre- I mean maybe but i i don't think i would like it's quite funny because i would you know it goes for a stupid amount of money and if i would think that the record shop owners here are savvy enough to do a little check on things so if that record showed up they may not recognize it in the first instance but um if they actually ran it through discogs or wherever else music stack or whatever they'd say oh right okay this is a 500 record so i um, was so, like yeah, they're. Yeah. I don't know if they'd they take it because I don't. I can't imagine there's probably one or two people I know in this town that would know that record. Be surprised, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So I like those. You know, I like those. I like being the one person that owns those records, and I quite. You know, I I I've learned a lot from my fellow record collectors in this town too. I really appreciate. It. There's some really yeah. good record collections yeah. in this country. I have to say, of all sorts. Um, I mean, a lot of it, again, coming from offshore, but yeah, I yeah. think that, you know, New Zealand's got a, a, a good share of, you know, solid collections out there. It's, so when those people go... <laughs> it's amazing, though, isn't it? That whole kind of, like, the the regional sort of things that hit and the, and the and things that don't travel internationally. Like, I always... I've always noticed just sort of, like, at, in New Zealand, there's fucking heaps of Joan Armour trading records secondhand. Yeah. Fucking heaps. Now, why was that? Well, you know, she was quite a big deal and on the charts here, so I imagine they produced a lot of her records and they sold, and then people that ditched their record collection ditched them and that's that. But 
when I went to the States in 2016, and one of the things, not the reason I went, but one of the things I did there was see Paul Williams play oh, yeah. in Las Vegas <laughs> and uh, with a friend, and it was it was terrible but brilliant because he couldn't sing anymore. Oh. And it was, but it was wonderful because he was a great storyteller. Mm. Um, and I was like, I've got a couple of Paul Williams records, and I thought, I won't bother taking, you know, I'm not really big on the meet and greet thing, but in a Las Vegas casino, you know, when in Rome. So... I um I thought well I won't take my record I'll just buy one in the states and I went into a dozen record stores and couldn't find you know but they're everywhere here for a dollar <laughs> and so this I just found things like that quite interesting that yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is I mean when going to Montreal um it being one of the kind of the disco capitals and he did the biggest meet and greet by the oh, way really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah and I you know I just sort of walked away like <laughs> it's like I, I just I'm watched not... Phantom of the Paradise like oh uh, so I got the I got <laughs> I picked up the ago. soundtrack recently actually yeah. I watched it in preparation yeah, for yeah, yeah. going to the gig. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was like because I it was that was sort of mythical for me. I'd <laughs> yeah. heard all about it and didn't really know anything about it. Yeah, um, yeah. that was and, it's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it's ludicrous. Oh, it's it's absolutely over the top. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's the great, soundtrack's so. pretty good. Was, I'm oh, kind of like I can't really remember. It's kind of like the best meatloaf album oh, ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I can remember because I I mean when I when I moved to Montreal and being kind of a it was this, the dis, what, the disco capital of, of North America mm. and one of the kind of key distribution points. Um, so we get a lot of records from Europe um, and New York. So it was kind of a bit of a hub. And when I first, when I moved back to Montreal in 94, 95, there was this place, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, but it was right near the National Library. And you would go in and you would buy records by weight. It, there were thousands of records there, right? And you'd see all these DJs there with the little turntables, and they'd be going yeah. through. And uh, you know, I can remember Kid Koala was like all these turntablists, and he would just get a stack of records, and you'd take them up to the counter, wow. and they put them on a scale, <laughs> and then they—I mean, they were super cheap. There were a yeah. lot of like a lot of really cheesy kind of yeah. high fire. And this was at that point in time when the kind of exotica revival was happening. Yeah, so yeah, there's all yeah. the Arthur Lyman records and all that sort of stuff. Um, it was just, I mean, it was just a, and that's one of the other reasons I kind of lost track of when and where I bought records. Cause it was just, you just go home with a stack of records like that and it would cost you, you know, 25, $30 and you'd have this stupid amount of records. Yeah, that yeah. was just a lot of kind of persuasive, all those hi-fi records and everything else like that. So, yeah, it was quite an interesting time to be on. None of that stuff exists anymore, unfortunately. But it yeah. was, I when I where I lived in my final year in Montreal, I had five record stores within a two block radius of my place. One, you know, some were kind of club, but a number of used record shops, and that was just kind of where I spent my afternoon when I wasn't writing, when I'd stopped writing, or when I didn't want to write anymore or write at all. I'd just go down to a record shop and just hang out there and listen to stuff. So. It's great. I miss those days. I miss. I mean, mm. I like. I like. I like record shops. I like. I, I like that kind of nerdy kind of. I just you know, and I like those record shops. I like the people that tell you what to listen to. You yeah. may not. You may not like it at all, but you know they're great repositories. You know. Of, oh, you know. I live on the. You know, down the road is the, one of the last video stores yeah, still right. standing, and yeah. I went in there the other day, and I had this moment where I don't know how it happened exactly, but. We got into a conversation about The Shining and then that turned into a conversation about Kubrick in general. 
and we were and I was talking about seeing Full Metal Jacket when I was far too young to you know what a heavy film it yeah. was to see when you were 10 yeah. and the guy was sort of laughing going you know you, you kind of turned out alright now I know that like you know I always thought you were f- fucking dubious but now I know that happened to you you're actually okay and I walked out of there going like well, I mean, I worked in a video store, so I had several of those conversations, but it was like, yeah, that was like a record store moment, and they just don't really exist anymore. Yeah. And it was like, I was, as soon as I walked out the door, I was nostalgic yeah. for the conversation I just had, which is yeah. pretty sad, yeah. but weird. Yeah, I, mean, I remember when I was a kid going to record shops for the first time, of course, the most intimidating places ever, because mm. those people were cool, and you always felt, you know, they're judging your purchases, yeah, all, yeah. That kind of, all, all that kind of hyphen, all these stuff in a yeah, way, but, yeah. but then you then you kind of get to be an adult, and then you actually kind of, you can kind of lean on them, and you know they've got bad taste, or good taste, or both, you know, and you can, you know, and they're not judging you in the same way that you thought they were when you were a teenager, Um but you know they're 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 a resource. They're 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 a local font of knowledge. In yeah, lots of yeah. Ways, right? And they're, they're, well, I always found the best way to cut through um, any of that perceived sort of snobbery around taste. But people sort of spend some money there. Yeah. That generally, <laughs> that generally just works. Kind of, if you go in and make more than one purchase, <laughs> you're, you're kind of, of in, doors, you're yeah. kind of in the club, really. Yeah, exactly. Like, Especially these days. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, that's right. More, more than ever now. Like, it's a pretty hard-hearted wanker that still wants to look down their nose at you when you're actually supporting their, their struggling business. <laughs>